bow our heads so the Spirit of God can speak to us. Father, we come and we pause. We pause because we come to a book in which we need help to understand from your Spirit. Because we know that your Word is alive and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And it is the way in which we can see that not only there is a God who created the world around us, but it is through his pages we realize that you have revealed yourself to us. So we ask that you can give us ears so that we may hear and eyes that we may see and that we may be able to take the truths that your spirit puts within our hearts and get them to grow and be instilled within our lives so when people see us, they can see our beloved Lord alive in us. So speak to us this morning. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have your Bibles, please open up to 1 Peter chapter 1. And as you do, I just want to sort of uh, look back for a moment to 1981, for I was uh, a young student back at the King's College in Westchester County, and it was announced in a certain chapel that a Wycliffe Bible translator was murdered by uh, the rebels after being held captive for 48 days. You might remember his name was Chet Bitterman. He was about eight years older than I. He was about 20, 28, and he was a husband and a father of two young daughters. And he was found dead on March 7th, 1981, on a bus near Bogota with a shotgun wound to his chest. And it moved me because he was close to being my age. But then I sort of found out later on that he wrote something in his diary just prior to him being murdered that sort of stand out, stood out. And it was this, that maybe this is just some kind of self-inflicted martyr complex, but I find this reoccurring thought that perhaps God will call me to be a martyr in his service in Colombia. And then he closes that one section by saying, I am willing. And so two things came to my mind when I heard that. That first of all, because I was very young in the faith, that dying because one is a Christian still happens. It's not something that's uh, relatively new, that it's always been there, but it, it continues even to this day. And there's a second thing that I realized, that the same thing could happen to me. And could I say that as he did, that I am willing? This morning we're going to be looking at just a, uh, a number of verses found in the beginning part of 1 Peter. And I have to say that I love the book of 1 Peter. 1 Peter is relevant to the issues that we find ourselves uh, living in within our culture. Because it addresses certain things that we all go through that Peter's audience did. Because Peter writes this short letter to a group of people who are being persecuted by their society. And persecution can come in uh, a great number of different ways, from just slander to just be made, uh, made fun of, to actually one losing their life. And as these verses begin to open up, they're in a different area in which they were used to, they 
were hearing rumors that Christians were being burnt alive in Rome as living torches, they were greatly misunderstood because the Jews hated them for many of them being former Jews and now sort of left Judaism. And then the Gentiles hated him because they were following this dead leader. And so they were being hated from every forefront. Rumors began to spread that these Christians were cannibals because they would um, eat and drink the body and blood of their dead leader. And so persecution were mounting. And Peter writes this letter to give them comfort because this persecution will come in many different forms that we shall see in these opening verses. But yet as we begin to sort of read these things, they are relevant into our into our society. Because Al Mohler has, has said in a recent message, it is not if persecution will come to the church, it's when it will come to the church. And so we begin to see the dark clouds of just being a Christian getting um, heaping uh, upon ourselves all kinds of uh, mistrust, all kinds of slander um, to where it may lead to actual persecution to where one may lose their life. And so Peter writes this short letter to give them hope, to give them comfort, to give them guidance, to help sort of give them assurance to know that they can have a viable faith even in the midst of a culture that persecutes them. And so that is at the heart of this very short letter of only five chapters. And though it took me a year to preach through this, and, and even during, during these opening verses, um, I told Joey, it took me five Sundays just to get through the first ten verses. And I got to get it all in one. And so we're going to be trying to, to, uh, to get a, a handle of everything that is going through. But these, this book is powerful. This book is life-changing. This book is relevant And we can see that there are many textual indicators on how severe this persecution was. If you look at verse 6 of chapter 1, he says that you have been distressed by various trials. Various means all kinds of shapes and sizes, and so they're distressed by it. In verse 7, he talks about that you are being tested by fire. In chapter 2 and verse 12, he talks about how the world slanders you. In verse 19, he talks about how they're suffering unjustly. In verse 20, he talks about how harshly they're being treated. And then in verse 21, he tells them how Christ was our example on how he suffered, we will suffer. In chapter 3, he goes on that if you do suffer, do not fear and do not be troubled. He goes on in verse 17 of chapter 3 to even to say it's the Lord's will if you suffer. Even chapter 4, he, um, he goes on to say, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal. And so he, he goes on, and that's just a very quick sampling of things. And so one of the major thrusts throughout this book is difficulties, hardships. Uh, just times in in, in which they just don't go smoothly because of the faith that they have. But yet these are verses that is not to be a downer because I don't like to preach downer messages, 
But it is um, a great set of verses for hope and comfort and to give ourselves, I think, preparation to how to handle persecution when it does come, because it will come. It can give us um, confidence to know that no matter what the Lord may put in our path, we can still have a vibrant, a growing Christian life, depending, um, not dependent upon the situation that we have. And so he writes this uh, set of, uh, the, uh, these set of chapters to give us comfort and hope because the dark clouds of persecution are looming over the horizon. And even the apostle Paul said in 2 Timothy chapter 3 that in the end times, savage times will come. And so normally when hardship comes, one gets to the place where you just want to call, uh, crawl up into a fetal position and just give up and say, I just can't do this. And that's how the audience of, um, that Peter writes to may feel because they're going through all kinds of trials and circumstances and they're hard. And so he wants to give them comfort and so 1 Peter gives us the answers on how we can have a confident faith in the midst of a hostile culture. And so he begins the book by focusing on God. He focuses then on our salvation, and then he focuses in on our inheritance. And it's that in- inheritance part that I want to sort of begin to look at today. And so if you have your Bible... Let me just sort of read these set of verses within context so you get the flow. In verse 1, Peter writes, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith, for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that, or resulting in the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. 
There is so much there in those opening verses, and hopefully I can sort of convey to you what Peter is trying to write. Because he writes this letter, as we see in the opening verses, to those who are scattered. They're like the sowing of a seed. You just sort of throw, you take a handful and you throw it. And so they're, they're scattered throughout what is now known as modern Turkey. And Peter goes to say that they reside as aliens. An alien is someone who is a stranger to an area. And so they're in a new area that had different cultures. And so they're scattered throughout, so there isn't a large group of them all in one place. They're scattered. They're aliens. They don't fit into the culture. They may speak the same language because uh, Corne Greek was throughout the um, entire area, but yet there was something different with them. They, were, they had allegiance to another homeland. They're now in a different land. And yet they were different in that they were spiritually different. He goes on to say at the end of verse 1 that they are chosen, literally chosen ones. We personally have been chosen by God. And so they're, they're scattered, they're aliens, and they were chosen and it's interesting because I could just sort of stop right there and, and just sort of sip the, the depth that Peter is trying to convey. But basically he's saying that when we were spiritually dead and we, we, we were most unlovable, when we lacked the strength and we lacked the merit and we lacked any kind of righteous deeds, when we lacked the peace and the character and there was nothing in our speech to bring us closer to God... He still chose to love us and selected us. And so it made them different from everyone else because they had a right relationship with God. And so Peter then now begins to talk about God himself because he wants them to remember that in the heart of your difficult times, remember the Lord is there. And so throughout these opening verses, he's going to look at God himself. And it's interesting because though we don't have a lot of time to sort of um, sip on the depthness there, we get to see, like in verse 2, the triune nature of God. There's God the Father being talked about, God the Spirit, and then God the Son. And then in verses 3 and following, we get to see God the Father again and Christ, and then we get to see the Holy Spirit at, at work going on. And so we get to see that the Lord is on display. And he's trying to tell them to remember God during the difficult times. Because when you begin to take your eyes off of, off of God and on your circumstances, those circumstances can look very bleak. But when you begin to look beyond yourself and onto God, it begins to give you a different perspective. So he wants to remind them to, first of all, remember your God. And that's what he begins to sort of focus on. And so in verse 2, as we begin to get to verse 3, he says that our salvation is coming from God. And so he says, according to the foreknowledge of God, that every believer has been chosen by God. And that Greek word there is a compound Greek word, um, which means um, before knowledge. And so it refers to something that God knew beforehand. 
And so when we were strangers and we were separate from, from the world, God knew us and he chose us. And the second aspect of the salvation that he wants them to remember that God had provided is that not only did God plan it, but secondly, the Spirit applied it. And so according to the foreknowledge of God, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit. And so the Spirit is at work to set us apart, to make us be obedient, to help us be holy. Because by, by the time he gets to verse 15 and 16, he commands the believer that we are to be holy. And he goes back and quotes the book of Leviticus, where the Lord commands Israel, Be holy, for I am holy. And so to accomplish that, um, it is through the sanctifying work of the Spirit of God. And how does it come about? Well, the Son achieved it in the middle part of verse 2. To obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. And so that is how salvation it comes about through the uh, sacrifice that our Lord had to do. How his atonement paid the complete price for the person who were to come to him and to repent. To have their sins forgiven for he died in our place. And how God's wrath that was destined to us was placed upon him. And so he wants them to remember God as these verses begin to unfold. And he wants them to remember the salvation that the Lord had provided. And he writes to those who are chosen. Now, if you were to do a sentence diagram, as they teach it in seminary, the main, uh, the main part of, of the sentence is found in verses 1 and verse 2. Peter writes to those who are chosen to obey. That's the main sentence. And so the believer is called to be obedient to his Lord. But that can be hard because as he begins to get into the difficulties of, of being a believer. And so it's more than just common, everyday hardships. This is, this is on top of that because of one's faith that things are difficult. So he writes... And he wants them to remember. Remember God. Remember your salvation. And then he begins to add this interesting phrase at, at the last part of verse 2. May grace and peace be yours in the fullest me measure. Paul uses that phrase often in the writings that he does. But Peter almost goes one step further. He says, may grace and peace be yours, but in fullest measure. Because as he's going to get into about those hardships, they're hard. They want you to make, make you feel impotent, that you can't accomplish anything. And so he prays that God's grace and peace will be given to you in his fullest, complete measure, especially, as it's going to be implied, as when those difficult times comes from persecution. And so that's how Peter opens up these verses. And immediately, because God is great for who he is, and he's awesome, and I like the word only when it applies to God, he's awesome with the salvation that he has given to us, 
he immediately jumps into a doxology of praise and he wants them to look at the inheritance or the result of the salvation that he has provided. And as you begin to sort of look at this, these set of verses are life-changing. And so if one lost a loved one, we can see here that these verses can give us comfort that we will see them again if they are another believer. But it also gives those who do not know Christ what the purpose of God's salvation is to man, is to make us a people set apart for him. And so these verses I want to sort of spend the rest of our time with and to look at. Because God has given us a salvation that is rich, that it's, uh, there's a depth to it. And part of that depth is our inheritance. Because God has planned our salvation and it was accomplished through Christ on the cross and the Holy Spirit applies it to the believer, Peter shouts out with praise because of who God is. And look at verse 3. We get to see part of this praise. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The original says that blessed the God and Father. And so it's a command and a call for God's people to praise God. And it's interesting, it's not just any old God because it qualifies itself. And so it is directed to a certain God, the God of the Bible, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so why is this important? Well, it's, it's important in a lot of ways because if you have anyone knocking on your door on, on, on Saturday and they're dressed in, in a tie, the Mormon will say that they believe in God. But their God is a little g God. It's not the God of the Bible. When the Jehovah Witness says that, that they believe in God, it's not the same God. You can talk to other people who believe that there is some power out there, that that's God. There's some grand poobah in the sky. Well, that's not the God of the Bible and how he has revealed himself. He has revealed himself in a certain way, and that is the direction of his praise. Blessed be the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because that's where salvation is found. He is the sovereign one. He's the Lord. And God is his father. And so his praise is to God himself. And then he goes on to say about the salvation aspect again. He's praising the Lord who accomplished his great mercy, who according, excuse me, according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again. That is a great statement. God's great mercy has caused us to be born again. If you know anything about, about God, we quickly find out that God is holy. And because he is holy, he is a just God. And so he has to judge man's sin. And so there is a judgment that allies every person. But yet we also know from like Ephesians chapter 2 that is for by grace we have been saved through faith. And, and, all that's, and all that is true because God has to deal out justice because he is holy. And so that is God giving us what we deserve. 
And so what does man deserve? Man deserves God's judgment. That's his justice. But yet we also know that for the sinner, there's a grace that they can appropriate through their son. That is God not giving us what we deserve. He gives the believer eternal life, and it's not anything that we deserve. But there's also what Peter focuses in on on here, uh, another aspect that you may not have thought about. His mercy being a part of the salvation process to cause us to be born again. Mercy is God not giving us what we deserve. We deserve eternal punishment. And so when the sinner comes to faith, We don't get the punishment that was destined to us. So mercy has been described as God's compassion on display. And not only does God give the sinner mercy, but it's great mercy. He qualifies it. How great is, how deep is God's mercy? He says it's great mercy. It's phenomenal mercy. And so it shows that there is no skimping on God's mercy. And when God works, it caused us to be born again. And we're born again to a living hope. For every person, they have a choice. They're born in their sin, and their sin condemns them. And so they need to hear the gospel and respond to the gospel. They need to be born again. And though you've all probably heard the gospel before, I'm sure there is somebody here who knows in their heart that they're truly not saved. And you need not to piggyback off of your parents' faith. You need to grasp that faith for yourself. That if you were to die today, you know for the, um, you know with no shadow of of doubt, that you will be with him because of what Christ had done. You need to turn from your sin and put your complete trust in him. And what happens? You You get to be born again to a living hope, something that it's, that has a full assurance. That's a great word. Because normally when you talk to most people, you say, well, I believe in God. What, are you going to be in heaven if you, if you were to die today? They may say, well, I hope so. There's a level of uncertainty there. But that is not what this word says. Because a lot of people say that, well, I hope the Giants win this Sunday. Well, we know that they may have a chance. If, if that was the Jets, you know they're going to lose. But that's another story. And I hope the Giants win. All right. But this word has a sense of reality to it. It's not a hope that has uncertainty. um, It's a direction that has absolute um, um, assurity. In Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 11, the author of the book of Hebrews talks about how we can realize the full assurance of the hope until the end. And so this hope we've been born uh, again to. And it's not any old kind of hope. It's a living hope. It's alive. It's active with us to give us a sense of confidence. 
Peter is going to use this word living to describe two other things. Not just here that there's a living hope, but also in uh, chapter, in, in verse 23 of chapter 1, he talks about that the word of God is living and enduring. And not just that, he, he goes on in chapter 2 to sort of use this same word to describe us as living stones. Stones in which the Lord is building his temple and we are those living stones of his spiritual house. And so the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. The Lord is adding to his church on a daily basis. And along with that, we have this living hope. That's a great fact because there's an implied contrast that this hope is not a dead hope. It's alive. It can Keep us enduring the hardest times because that is where our focus is at. Because here in America, living in a fairly good situation that most people have never experienced before in the history of the world, where most of the time things are going fairly smooth, most people live under very harsh conditions, especially those who are, who are under persecution for their faith. Because when times get tough, the believer always looked for one day they're going to be leaving this world with all of its pain and all of its sorrow and all of its agony. That there was one day a place in which was built by God himself and that was the yearning for them. Well, that's the same idea here, that we have a living hope. And it's interesting. How does it come about? It comes about through faith in Christ. We're born again with a new direction, a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And so our Lord is alive. He's not in the ground. He fulfilled all of the promises that he had made. All of our Sins were placed upon him, and his righteousness was given over to us. And so that is something that comes about through faith in him. But I want you to look at verse 4, and I just want to sort of go through this grocery list here of what Peter gives us. There There is a result from the salvation that the believer has. And in verse 4, he begins to talk about an inheritance. That one of the results of the faith that we have is that every believer has an inheritance. And I'm sure that that you have a basic understanding of what that word means. It's something that you didn't earn. And so generally through an an inheritance, it's something that that is of importance that's passed down from, from someone else. It could be money. It could be objects. It's an inheritance. It has your name upon it when the owner passes on. And so our heavenly inheritance, which is talked about here, is unlike our earthly inheritance. And this inheritance encompasses more than just heavenly riches. One commentator sums up our inheritance with one word, heaven. And though that's right, you have to think deeply about what what encompasses heaven. Well, it's everything that our salvation really is. Our inheritance is that opportunity in which 
we not only receive heavenly riches, but it's to be Christ-like, is to have that new heavenly body. There's a, it's being a citizen in which there is no more pain and no more sorrow, of immense blessing, being able to praise God without the threat of sin entering into our thoughts, being in Christ's presence and seeing him face to face in the communion that we have and the joy that we have. It's the rewards that we sort of store up in heaven. And so that's our inheritance. And that's our focus. And he brings up the concept of an inheritance because that's what they should be looking towards as they live out their faith in the midst of this difficult persecution that they will go through. There's more to life than just the here and now. And it comes through faith in him. And look what this inheritance is. And let me just sort of go through this one list. First of all, our inheritance is imperishable. That Greek word there means it doesn't decay or to pass away. And so generally things can, can perish. There is a sell-by date on things. And so the, um, our inheritance, it's something that will never pass away. It will never grow stale. If you ever bought a pineapple at the store but didn't quite eat it in time, and if you just um, let, uh, let it just sort of sit there, though it looks very menacing, it has a very limited shelf life. Though it towers over other fruit, if you just leave it alone, it just will spoil and turn into a pile of just mush. It's not sturdy anymore. It perishes. And so the idea of our inheritance is something that is secure. It will never spoil or decay. It will always remain as fresh as when it began. But also, Peter goes on to say, with this result of the salvation that we have to give us confidence is that our inheritance is undefiled. That word simply means not polluted or stained by sin. And so if you know anything about cooking chicken, the rules of cooking chicken over the last 20 years have changed. Because before you used to cook it right on the, you know, you would prepare it right on the countertop and just wipe it down with a sponge. Well, now there's such a fear of, because of salmonella um, cross-contamination, you, you pretty much, you know, wash everything down with disinfectant after you deal with the raw chicken. Well, sin acts in the same way. It, it affects and infects our lives at every place. Though we're not under the bondage of sin anymore and we're freed from his penalties, it still affects us because it tempts us. And so with our inheritance, it's undefiled. No longer will it be polluted or stained by sin. But thirdly, we get to see in verse 4, it doesn't fade away. It, the beauty that it has will not become impaired at all. Peter uses the same word in chapter 5 and verse 4 about the believer's unfading crown of glory. And so that crown will never lose its luster. And so if you ever had any furniture or artwork, you, you know very quickly you don't put things of valuable or things with brightly colors and have them sit in, in the sun by an, an open window. Because if the sun just hits half 
uh, half of a couch, one day you will notice that there will be different colors from one side to the other side because the sun will fade things. And so with our inheritance, it will never fade away. It will remain as beautiful in uh, a million years from now as when it first got started. But fourthly, it's reserved in heaven for you. What a great thought that is. That all of the promises that the Lord has given to us about our salvation, that is just waiting for us be there, it's reserved. It already exists. It's just waiting for you. I remember one time we won corporate box tickets at, at the old Yankee Stadium. And, and to go there with our group, there's a special line. It's will call line. I never knew what will call was. But that's a place, a special window, a special gate where you go to where your ticket has your name on it already. Oh, no more lines to wait. I'm, I'm over there with them. And so he just walked right on and walked right on in. And guess what? With the corporate box seats, they had free hot dogs, free food. It was getting better all the time. But I was disappointed because even though you could eat as many hot dogs as you want, there's only so many hot dogs one can eat. And so before you go, I got enough hot dogs. But the point is, is that it had my name already on it. That's our inheritance. Our inheritance is reserved for you. It has your name on it. And that's how secure it is. Because there's a fifth aspect of our inheritance in verse 5. Not just is it reserved for you, because some, may, some will say, well, you can still give up that salvation. No. Look at verse 5. Our inheritance is protected by the power of God. Hmm. That word there means guarded or shielded. We have a salvation and an inheritance that is protected and shielded by God himself. That gives the believer confidence. Huh. God not only loves me, but he protects me. And he gives me a salvation and an inheritance that is reserved for me in heaven. And so that's why in other passages that you can go to, like the great eternal security chapter in Romans chapter 8, where verse 1 says there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No longer does for those who are in Christ have God's condemnation against them, even if they were to give it up in a way that they could. Then in verse 33, Paul goes on to say, who will bring a charge against God's elect?" And the rhetorical question is, nobody. Then he goes on and say in verses 37 through 39, but in all these things we are more than conquerors, overwhelming conquered through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, or principalities, nor thing present, or things to come, or powers, nor height, or depth, or any other created thing shall separate us from the love of God, which is his in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Paul's point is that there's nothing on this earth, there's nothing in the spiritual realm, and there's nothing even with myself 
that could separate us from the love of God. God has an unconditional love, an agape love, in which our faith, there is no condemnation because we're protected by the power of God. And so as he begins to sort of go through this list, we, we begin to, to see that each one of these things is to build confidence and assurance in the midst of persecution. Look at verse 5. We get to see that it is our inheritance will be revealed at a certain time. We are protected by the power of God, verse 5, through, through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. It's all set to go. It, it, it's there. It's a guarantee. And look at verse 6. This is great. After going through this grocery list, he, he, he goes on to say, In this you also, or in this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. He, his heart is, is still joyful. After, you know, saying that God is worthy to be praised, he is worthy of our adoration and our worship because of the salvation that he has given to us. He has, he's made us alive. We're born again. We have a living hope. We have an inheritance because of the resurrection of Christ. And then he goes on to say, in this you should greatly rejoice. And so even though times are difficult as he will begin to unfold those things, have joy. Have a great joy for yourself. And so he's, this joy is based upon their understanding of God, their understanding of salvation, and their understanding of their inheritance. And this is, this is an interesting term because it's a complex word. It's more than just the word joy. It's great joy. In this you greatly rejoice. Because Paul uses the word joy in Philippians, in, in the whole book of Philippians, and, and that's great. But this is you greatly rejoice. There's a little bit more, more of an oomph to it. That we are to have joy. Now we all know that happiness is sort of different than joy. Because normally happiness is dependent upon our circumstances. When things are going well, I'm happy, happy, happy. Because they're going well. Your car breaks down, you're not happy anymore. $1,000 to get that baby fixed. You're not happy anymore. You're poor. But joy it goes beyond that. Joy is not based on our circumstances. We can be filled with joy despite any dark trials and circumstances that we go through. And so Paul is saying that in the midst of these dark trials... Not only can we be filled with joy because of the salvation we have, but we can have a supreme, abundant joy. And so if you look at what he has already said as the foundation for this joy, well, there are, there are, are past reasons what God had done. Back in verse 2, we can have joy because of what God had done in the past. We've been set apart. We've been sprinkled with the blood of Christ. Presently, we are God's elect and we're kept by God's power. And in the future, we have an, an, an inheritance reserved for us in heaven. And we look forward to that salvation, which will be revealed in the last time. 
And so it's based upon the theology of what he has already said, that you can have joy. Look look what God has done for you in the past. Look what he's presently doing, and look what he's going to be doing in the future. That should thrill your heart so that you don't want to crawl into a fetal position and just give up when times are hard. And so he goes on to say that, uh, verse 7, the results of the proof of your faith, which is more precious than gold, which is perishable, will be tested by fire, but it will result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Christ through your faithfulness. But I want you to look at, in a few moments, verse 8. Great verse for us, because... Essentially, they're having a hard time coping. And he's, he's telling them, uh, when you remember who God is, when you remember the salvation he provided, when you remember what lies before you with your inheritance, verse 8, and though you have not seen him, you love him. That's Christ. For the, for the, for the believer, we've never seen him. Peter saw him face to face, but we've never seen him. We've never touched him. We've never walked with him and to hear the words that he said. We've never shared a meal with him nor laughed with him. We've never cried with him. But yet, Peter goes on to say, even though there's something special with that, even though you have not seen him, You love him because of what he has done and what he means to us with the salvation that he has provided. Every believer since the first century has been in the same boat. We love a person that we've never met. And you want to know what can separate you from knowing that you're saved and maybe you're probably not saved is how deep is your love for Christ. Do you love him above everyone else for the salvation that he had accomplished? Because he did it all. All your sin was poured out upon him. And we're going to be taking, partaking at the table in a moment. And he did it because he loved me. So we are to love him with that same unconditional agape love. And we just read in John chapter 14 where our our Lord is telling them, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. He's equating there that loving him with obeying him. And by the time he gets to verse 15 and 16, that's that's what Peter says, you know, for you to fulfill that command that's found in the book of Leviticus. Be holy, for I am holy. And so we love him. There's a desire to please him because we believe in him, because he's trustworthy. And so these verses are to give comfort. And you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible, full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. So while they're going to be going through hard times, they have a hope. It's alive. 
They have a purpose that is in front of them. They can remember the Lord through all the hardship. They can remember the salvation that Christ has provided for them. And they have an inheritance that should fill their heart with joy. Because we love him, though we've never seen him. And so you may find yourself walking in dark days. But if you remember those three things, I think it will greatly help you. When you have it hard, whether or not it's just your daily trials, or maybe when persecution does come, because it will come, and I will probably be in prison before you get there, um, it, remember God. Remember his salvation. Remember your inheritance. Because look at chapter 5 and verse 6. There's one more place before we come to the table. I come to verses 6 and 7 of chapter 5 often. Because he begins to have some concluding thoughts. And he's saying, when we humble ourselves and look to the Lord, therefore humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time. Casting all your anxiety on, on him because he cares for you. And so he's going to be sort of summing up what he's saying throughout the book with, with those statements. That we have uh, the proper mindset. As what Paul says in Colossians chapter 3. Where when we keep seeking the things above and we set our minds on the things above. And what Paul says in Romans chapter 12, when we present ourselves to God uh, by the renewing of our minds and letting the word of God fill us, we can get to the place where we can serve the Lord with gladness even at hard times. And so it is a salvation that God has provided for us through his son. That when we see our helplessness and when we have nowhere else to turn but to God, and we repent of our sin and turn to Christ. He gives us salva a salvation in which he washes us clean. And that washing is thorough. It is complete. And so with that, we can have new, a new purpose in life. To where the word of God is more than just a book. It's living. It's enduring. And, and the Lord places us into the body of Christ where we are now living stones serving the chief cornerstone. And he tells us on how we are to submit to the government and to submit to those who are in authority. How to follow Christ's example on how we can have a, a godly marriage even if our spouse is not saved. And he goes on and on to begin to apply these things. But how great they are because they're founded in our beloved Lord. So as we begin to sort of partake together, let's, I guess we sing a song. Do, do, do we sing a song? Well, why don't we have the men come forward? And to prepare our hearts. Because as we begin,